0: This is Tempest Tossed, conversations on migration and mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. This episode, entitled The Last 20 Miles, was conceived, produced, and reported by Annika Hansen with Alison Erickson.
1: In October, when the news was all about the migrant caravan, I found myself thinking about the physical experience of people walking almost 3,000 miles from Honduras to Tijuana, poorly equipped and with barely any preparation, and about how that kind of effort, that exertion, signifies real need. After all, how many of us are willing to walk 3,000 miles? Or even jog a few? While the United States is often divided politically, we all have bodies. Can we consider migration from the perspective of our most basic shared physical reality? To find out what we're built for, what risks these journeys pose to migrants, and the preparation necessary for survival, I spoke with an anatomist, an elite endurance athlete, and a forensic anthropologist. First, I visited Dr. Jeffrey Latman, professor of anatomy and morphology at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, to learn more. From your, your expert perspective, what does our anatomy suggest about our nature? Are humans built for migration?
2: Uh, humans are perfectly built for migration. We have to take a step back and look at what we are now and how we came to be that way. We are an absolutely fascinating animal. We are part of primates, the first, we named it. So we call ourselves the first. Whales and maybe cats and others might disagree, Mm -hmm. but we control the press. And we've gone through a fascinating evolution. And this evolution has been taking place for millions of years in which things have changed. And one of the things that changed in us was we came from ancestors that were somewhat quadrupedal in nature to those who eventually had one of the great changes to what we call habitual bipedalism.
1: So upright walking.
2: Yes, in a habitual way. Mm -hmm. So there are many animals, even relatives, that can uh, intermittently walk on two limbs chimps do it on occasion and so on but we do it all the time it's our normal mode now this wasn't just ug deciding she wanted to stand up on the plains of africa two million years ago this was a gradual process and in this process was enormous refinement and rearrangements of almost every part of our body Mm -hmm. and it was a gradual thing that came to play and we have different parts of us that change for different reasons, but we can look at a specific example. One aspect that is very important and often overlooked, we don't think about it too much, is our remarkable foot. We don't think about feet too much. Thing. Most people don't think about feet.
1: If you've been on them for too long, then right. you start to think about them.
2: Then you, right, and then you massage them, or you go mm-hmm. out and and buy. I learned you sneakers can now cost like six or eight hundred dollars. This is beyond me. But the the our foot is one of the most extraordinary structures of our body, and certainly one of the most underappreciated. The feet of most of our relatives are very different. Over the years, what occurred was our feet became highly, highly specialized. So specialized that they lost their role to pick up things with their hands and they became a structure solely for weight bearing and for transmission. Our feet, for example, human feet, have in it what we call a double arch system, a longitudinal arch and a transverse arch.
1: So longitudinal arch moving from toe to heel. That's right. And transverse from side to side.
2: And it is an amazing structure that takes forces that comes through our pelvis and femur and leg and can transmit them efficiently through the tightly interlocked bones of a foot. This is extraordinary, and the mechanism that's evolved for this over the years has been one in which we tend to use muscles less at certain times rather than having to use them all the time. We could rest at times, which saves us energy, which means that energy can go back into some general pool for other things.
1: So the development of our foot has made our bodies more efficient for a broader variety of tasks?
2: Yes. So what's occurred was we became reliant on a habitual bipedal gait somewhere in East Africa, maybe 3 million years ago. And this had a lot of effects. One is that our hands became free. So if you don't have to use these for climbing or for ambulating, you can use them for other things, like holding things, Mm -hmm. which is pretty nifty. Also, we were changing, our brain was growing, it was getting larger. We started to evolve new ways of communicating and new ways of moving and walking on the plains and savannas of East Africa. Now, you put this animal together, and we are an animal, we're part of primates, and we are set with a brain, we're set with feet and lower extremities, we're set with hands, so we're also pretty smart. And what can happen is, if the environment changes, we don't just sit there and die. So our group would look around, And figure out, whoa, animals are getting less, the water is drying up, what are we going to do? And eventually groups started to migrate.
1: So our our human migration is a demonstration of human intelligence then, of animal intelligence.
2: Yes, it's part of our package. Mm -hmm. Other animals have temporary migrations and all animals are different. But our species was one that traditionally has been able to pick up and go. So there we are, we are one species. We are all designed to be able to move, to walk, to think. And that has taken us all over the world to every habitable area. Some are not so habitable, but every habitable area we've come to. And then depending on how long our groups have been there, we've acclimated in various ways. So evolution is not stopped. Evolution continues, uh, but it continues more on a micro level than on a major level.
1: So when we think about uh, migration today, and we think of humans as animals who move, And suddenly we have animals who move, whose movement is a response to their environment, is a healthy response to their environment. And we think of the socio-political structures around migration. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the conflict we face?
2: Well, the conflict we face is apparent. Uh, We're a group that needs to migrate. We're a group that if things are bad, if you're not getting enough food, if you're in danger— These are basic things, you're gonna migrate. Whether it was the Irish coming over in the 19th century due to the potato famine, whether it was Jews leaving the shtetls of Eastern Europe, whether it was Amerindian ancestors coming down through areas of the Northwest because prey was leaving, you migrate, you move. This is no different than what is occurring with many peoples in our own hemisphere who are in periods of want and fear and they're migrating to areas that they see and know can be healthier. This is a very normal activity. Now, the socio-political things of this is an entirely different question. Uh, and a question, unfortunately, that really runs up against the normal activity of humans to migrate. So...
1: So our socio-political structures are putting us in conflict with our biological structures, yes, potentially. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. It has struck me um, over the last months as as the news has been flooded with these stories of migrant caravans traveling um, largely by foot from Central America to the southern United States border, um, that we have not particularly considered what kind of physical feat a, a, a walk like that is, which is about... Um, Twenty-eight hundred miles, which is longer than the Pacific Coast Trail. It is covering altitude changes that range from sea level to well over a mile above sea level, and um, you know these are diverse populations. These are these are everything from babies to older folks taking these trips, and um, it has made me curious about what were built for in terms of endurance like this and how we might think about people undertaking such an extraordinary act.
2: Very few individuals have built for a multi-thousand-mile trip carrying things in heat. Uh, I'm sure many die along the way. It's a very dangerous thing for the body, dangerous always for the youngest of the group, dangerous for the oldest of the group, Obviously a hale and hearty young person is gonna be in better shape, but many will die along the way. The interesting point within that is the inner message of migration and using your body to come to a safer haven is what pushes people along. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And that's the eternal thing that's pushing people to come to a new location. Right. Uh, is it injurious? Of course. Uh, the pressure's enormous. Uh, the physical pressure's on the body, unbelievable. This is not an easy thing for the human species to do under any way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. Uh, and that's why when individuals come into, when I look and we all look at pictures of individuals coming, there for whatever reason, you can talk about the socioeconomic reasons, you can talk about the political reasons, biologically, they're desperately trying to come to a situation where they can live safely and have food for the family. Right. And uh, this is what pushes our species, is the baseline right. of everything. And we use all that we've had and every bit of energy that we've had.
1: So I found myself reading up on the physiology of endurance and uh, and looking at things like what kinds of um, training programs are recommended for long hikes and and things like that, and um, you know contrasting this with with an act that is um, more extreme in many many regards from many perspectives than hiking say the Pacific Coast Trail or the Appalachian Trail. Could you talk a little bit about preparation and endurance in relationship to our physicality and migration?
2: Do 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 you recall what happened to the fellow who ran the original marathon at the end of the marathon?
1: I don't, but he probably died. He died. Yeah.
2: We were not designed, and I use that word because design is not really a good word to use when you're talking about evolution, but our species didn't come to be to be pushed to the nth degrees. This is only things that can be done when everything else is satisfied. We were made for walking. We were made for getting out of bad situations. We were made for recognizing bad situations. Our body knows when it doesn't get enough food. Mm -hmm. Our body knows when it doesn't get enough sleep. Our body knows when we're in danger. That's when we migrate. Mm -hmm. That's when we move.
1: It seems transcontinental migrations by foot have helped define our human bodies and our human cultures. But they're also dangerous. Could an endurance athlete offer any insight into the physical challenges faced by members of these migrant caravans? I called Pete Kostelnik, an expert in endurance, to talk about how he prepares to test the limits of his own physical capacity. So, Pete, you've explored the limits of your physical capacity. How have you done that? What are your accomplishments?
3: You know, I've done uh, probably the most notable is I've done uh, two what we would call transcontinental runs. One was in uh, 2016 from San Francisco to New York City, which was about 3,067 miles um, over the course of 42 days. More recently, in 2018, I ran about 5,384 miles from Kenai, Alaska to Key West Florida over the course of about 100 days it's so challenging as well when it's, if it's warm out, you know, from Alaska to Florida, I was, I was pretty lucky with weather, but then in Florida, it was in the 80s and 90s most days. And so even if I did have water options every 10 to 15 miles, you know, by the time I covered 15 miles, water was warm and from the sun beating down on me. So uh, that's just another layer of complexity.
1: So what kind of equipment did you bring on that? that run from Alaska to Florida, what was in your stroller?
3: Each morning I would fill up three water bladders that carry about 70 ounces of water. Sometimes I would need more depending on how long the day would be. I always had a, a bare canister full of snacks and food uh, to get me through the day, um, about four pairs of, of changes of clothes, a backed-up pair of uh, running shoes, and um, some electrical equipment like uh, portable chargers as well uh, on board.
1: So when you're prepping for these runs and you're putting together this toolkit, uh, how long does it take you to make decisions about what you're going to include, what the weight is that you're going to be either carrying or or, uh, pushing or pulling as you run?
3: For running from Alaska to Florida, it was really over a year of, I guess, passive planning. But then really also you know, five or six months of trial and error with determining what was needed and what wasn't needed um, because you just have such limited space and limited <laughs> capability of, of carrying everything you would want. So that was the, you know, about half a year of, of really detailed planning of what I would take with me.
1: So migrant caravans um, travel as much as 2,800 miles much of it on foot, so a little bit less than your cross-country run. And reports have noted that most people are really poorly equipped, wearing flip-flops and Crocs and covering elevation ranges from sea level to over a mile high. I'm curious, knowing what you know about the body and about endurance, what does it mean for a person to take a trek like that under those conditions? What kinds of steps would you take if you were facing this sort of journey? from your position as an athlete?
3: Yeah. Um, you know, I, it's, I, I wonder, you know, how they eat enough because even if you're just walking, may, say, maybe 10 to 15 miles a day, that, you know, you're burning about twice as many calories as uh, you normally would. And then you're probably having, also having to drink over twice as much as you normally would have to. So, I mean, figuring out how you're going to keep enough calories in your system uh, to not become malnourished and then also... Having enough water, especially cold water, or at least not warm water, would be also a very very difficult thing to overcome, in my opinion. Even with a stroller, a lot of days I was having all the water on my stroller. It was sometimes a close call on whether or not I had enough water to get through the entire day.
1: So if you had to pick up and go in 24 hours on one of these massive trips, could you imagine doing it?
3: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It'd be very scary. I would pack, uh, you know, water bladders. I mean, it's probably the most important piece of of equipment I would look for immediately because you can you can collapse them and then fill them up whenever. But um, gosh, that'd be a pretty scary uh, undertaking.
1: The migrant caravan that became the focal point of U.S. news leading up to midterm elections in November 2018 set out from San Pedro Sula, Honduras, and crossed through Guatemala before traveling along the western edge of Mexico to Tijuana, where many sought asylum and entry to the United States. But migrants and migrant caravans choose many different routes through Central America and Mexico, and not all migrants head to a legal port of entry. For years, many have attempted more dangerous crossings, paying smugglers to take them through the Sonoran Desert into Arizona, where demands on the body increase further. I called Dr. Bruce Anderson, a forensic anthropologist in Tucson, Arizona, to learn more about what happens to those who take this path.
4: Thank you for calling the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner. If you are calling from a law enforcement agency, Medical facility or a funeral home wanting to report a death, please press 1. For all other calls, please press 2. Hey, Annika, how are you?
1: Hi, Bruce. I'm well, thanks. How are you? Pretty good. Great. Thanks so much for making time to speak. So the Office of the Medical Examiner in Pima County, Arizona, has spent many, many years identifying bodies found in the Sonoran Desert along the southern border with Mexico. Can you describe the desert to us? What are the conditions there?
4: Well, it's a beautiful desert. It, it's not like the Sahara. It's heavily uh, vegetated with uh, native species of mesquite trees and palo Verde trees, uh, creosote bushes. Uh, It's just a beautiful place uh, when the temperatures are moderate, 70s, 80s. But in the summertime, uh, let's say between May and September, when the temperatures are going to be between 90 and maybe 110, 115, it can be exceedingly dangerous. And it has taken the lives of somewhere near 3,000 people over the last 20 years. 3,000 dead. Some motor vehicle accidents are very few homicides, but the the vast majority of the dead are either known to be from uh, heat exhaustion or thought to be from heat exhaustion.
1: Mm -hmm. So, you've developed methods to assist in determining who these people are and where they came from. Who are the people who are dying in the Sonoran Desert?
4: Well, historically, over the last 20 years, almost 90% have been Mexican citizens, And I have to preface that by saying we have only identified Mm two-thirds. We've identified about 2,000 people out of the 3,000 cases uh, that have come to our jurisdiction. But of those 2,000 or so, uh, nearly 90% are Mexican citizens, and then 2 or 3% are Guatemalans. 2% Salvadorans, Hondurans, and then virtually every other country in the Caribbean or Central America or Northern. South America uh, probably has one or two or five deaths over the last uh, 20 years.
1: Is it safe to assume that the majority of these people are attempting to cross the border into the United States?
4: We believe so. We thought we had, and we've been justified in thinking now for 18-some years that We had better characterize or profile an identified body or bone as more likely an American citizen or more likely a a foreign national. We term these people that are not American citizens as uh, undocumented border crossers or UBC for short. Mm -hmm. So of the 1,000 people that I mentioned earlier that have yet to be identified, we think They're UBCs, and we think when they get identified, they will be foreign national. But uh, this this coding uh, separating out American citizens from foreign nationals, it gives the most accurate count uh, that we can think of for the uh, severity of this uh, deadly issue that's affected our office for more than 20 years now.
1: Dr. Leitman talked with us about how humans are migratory creatures, that we are built to move, and especially to move in order to ensure our safety and well-being, and how we've under, we've adapted to undertake extreme acts when necessary, but that walking 3,000 miles on foot really pushes our limits. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit from your perspective about the conditions of the Sonoran Desert. And are people adapted to survive exposure to those conditions?
4: Well, um, when you say people, you're talking about Homo sapiens. You're t- we're talking about us, human beings. So as a, as a group, on the whole, we are adapted to do these things. Uh, the Arctic was uh, settled by migratory Asians who found their way all the way to Greenland. So we know that humans can migrate through very harsh conditions. But we've always, humans have always had a technological kit with them. So we've always utilized clothing or shade or carrying water and things that other animals don't do, can't do. So part of this evolutionary adaptation for migration involves our toolkit and and the things we make and the things we can carry and, this, and the and ma- the maps that we may have, or the uh, stories we may have been told from, from uh, prior uh, migrations, uh, too ma mu- too many times. What's happening here in this harsh, dry, rocky, uh, thorn-ridden Sonoran Desert is that the folks that are attempting the last twenty miles, or if you will, or the last forty miles from the international border to the first paved road where they can then get into a motor vehicle and and, and go further north. That last 20 or 40 miles is is much more difficult than the first 1,000 or 2,000 miles, primarily because many of the people don't have the kind of toolkit with them. And ultimately, what that means is that they're not wearing the right kind of footwear that would stand walking that long. They're not able to carry as much water as is needed to cross uh, through the desert if they're sleeping during the day or resting during the day. Hopefully, it's in a shady area where their body uh, temperatures can cool back down a little bit. But then when they're walking at night, uh, our nights can still be in the 90s here in the Sonoran Desert. So a lot of this is that the people that are attempting are not adapted to desert conditions. They're from coastal areas in Veracruz or uh, the mountains of Guerrero or Guanajuato, and They've had no experience. Uh, Forget a biological adaptation as an individual. They've had no experience in running this kind of gauntlet. You layer that with the fact that the smugglers, the so-called coyotes, uh, they lie to the migrants about the length of the journey, how far they're going to walk, how much water they need to carry. They make them buy uh, cheap, dark or camouflage-colored footwear, just south of the international border. And now people who maybe had comfortable shoes, the shoes that, would have, uh, uh, that had uh, supported their walk for days or weeks prior, now they're forced to buy these cheap plastic-type shoes that after <laughs> a few miles of walking, now the people have blisters in the most critical place of their body, on the balls of their feet and their heels, and they cannot walk anymore. Now, that's a recipe for death right there, and we have seen that play out too many times.
1: What we're seeing so much in news reports is that people are wearing flip-flops and Crocs and um, footwear of that kind, packing very lightly. Um, So it's interesting when you talk about a toolkit and the specificity of that toolkit that's required for someone to succeed. Uh, And you just mentioned the... The fact that this is the end of a long journey for many people and that they're extremely depleted and unprepared for the challenge of the Sonoran Desert, why do people pass through the Sonoran Desert rather than other places?
4: (laughs) Because they can. U.S. government policy back in the 90s, and this was under Immigration and Natural Services, uh, they created three or four, I guess they call them operations. Uh, They went by the name of Operation Gatekeeper and Operation Hold the Line and Operation, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the third one. But a part of these operations, and and the the reason for these operations was to stem the flow of migration in the urban areas in California and Texas and the smaller urban areas on the Arizona, Sonora, uh, Border and make it difficult, more difficult for the smuggling organizations to get uh, to smuggle people across. And what these, what this policy did, this INS policy back in the 90s, was to create a what has been termed now by research as a funnel effect, which if you're coming north and you can't get across the Rio Grande or you can't get across in San Diego or in central California, because border patrol has been, uh, 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 patrolling has been increased uh, due to this policy from INS that has left basically an opening in the Sonoran desert in Pima County, Arizona, uh, through both county land, uh, federal land, and the Tohono O'odham nation that has no fence, no natural barriers, If there is a fence, it's a a livestock fence to keep cattle from going from one place to another. The U.S. government set set this up, and there's even position papers that talk about how the Sonoran Desert, because of its harshness, would, would act as a natural deterrent. And I'm paraphrasing here, but one of the papers went on to say, and if people still cross and a few of them die, that will serve to deter even more people. And of course, just the opposite has happened. Uh, that's, that funneling of everybody out of Mexico towards Pima County, Arizona, where you can easily step across a strand of barbed wire or, or go through an opening uh, where there's not even a gate, uh, especially on the Tohoto Odo Reservation, where the reservation, the nation extends uh, into Mexico.
1: The number of people crossing the border, uh, the number of Mexicans crossing the border, has come down significantly. But there's been a real surge in the number of Central Americans who are crossing. Is there a consistency in those changes that you see also in the kinds of the numbers of identifications of UCBs you're making?
4: Yeah, we we we've had a a, a noticeable increase percentage-wise uh, in the number of Honduran de- number of people from Honduras in Guatemala. So even though the condition of a lot of these bodies uh is going to push identification off for months or years, a few people have come in uh who have died more recently and proportionally Hondurans and Guatemalans uh Have have increased.
1: The Washington Post recently um, reported that the number of border crossings more than doubled in the past year, and indeed, there was a six percent increase in the crossings. Uh, along the border with Mexico in March, making monthly arrests at their highest point since 2007. And I was wondering if you are seeing any uptick yet in uh, the number of people who are perishing in the Sonoran Desert.
4: No, but it hasn't gotten hot yet. And we've had an exceedingly mild, perhaps historically the most mild May in in Tucson uh, history. And uh, triple digits are predicted for this weekend, and then probably will stay with us uh, for three months. What we what we fear is what we read in the newspaper about these families who are coming to seek asylum. So now you have a couple of parents and a whole bunch of kids, some maybe still being carried uh, by one of the parents, and these folks are trying to get an appointment. Who have their case heard and then go into the asylum waiting line. But what we've already seen played out, uh, and and this is this is happening primarily in Tijuana, Baja California. But what we've seen played out twice now in the last two weeks is that enterprising smugglers in Tijuana have convinced enough of these families to get on a bus. I'm sure for a fee. And then they're bused an hour or two three hours over to the california uh, uh, Arizona uh, state line still in Sonora mexico and If you go another hour or so, uh that state route in Mexico comes within a couple hundred yards of the international border and then these buses are emptying out in the wee hours of the morning, and I think uh last time i Talked to a border patrol agent. Almost 400 people got off of these buses. were were seen with night vision. They were monitored by border patrol, and 400 people. I think they said the 300 were minors. Got into a, got into the United States by a hundred yards or so, and just sat and waited for border patrol to come and get them, arrest them, and then this would be a way in their mind, to, uh, to get in uh, uh, that asylum uh, line quicker than waiting in Tijuana. So the real, the real danger here is that if this keeps happening over the summer and there's nowhere for these folks to go, and if they have little kids, we have the potential to see some really horrific uh, scenarios played out.
1: Has this happened before?
4: So that hasn't happened yet. But we're we're watching the news accounts and talking to Border Patrol about uh their experience. And uh I think everybody is hopeful that uh that kind of activity will stop because Border Patrol has gone on the record saying it could take up to seventy two hours for their agents to extract, if you will, all four four hundred people in that in that scenario, it could take up to seventy two hours for them to either Get buses in there, or helicopters, or whatever else they have to do, formally uh, uh, arrest uh, the individuals, uh, get their asylum claim uh, stated, and then move them to safety, uh, which increasingly are are either homes or uh, or uh, 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 public buildings here in Tucson and Phoenix. But if it takes three days for them to extract everybody out of the remote desert, and it's 120 degrees in the day, that's gonna be bad.
1: Yeah, there will be deaths, likely. There's
4: gonna be death, that's right, that is right.
1: In your experience over the course of your career, uh, the people that you have found in the desert, have they primarily been um, single travelers or have you been encountering families, women, children?
4: Very, very few families and very few minor deaths. Uh, I think a 13 year old boy uh, is the youngest a uh, uh, desert death? We've had relatives die, but but not not nuclear families. So that's going to be uh, uh, hopefully that never happens. But that's going to uh, uh, that's going to change things up if we start seeing these kinds of uh, group deaths.
1: Without migration, our world and our bodies would look quite different. We evolve to move, and the fact that our species does when crops are poor or our children are threatened by violence is a sign of our intelligence. But for migrants who struggled and managed to arrive at the southern border of the United States, the hardest part may be yet to come. As current policies shift to deter asylum seekers and families file requests for status, they are forced into limbo in border towns. Prolonged uncertainty can drive greater desperation, and families are beginning to gamble on illegal border crossings as a way to hasten the processing of their cases. Now, the decades-old policy of prevention through deterrence, which has already claimed thousands of lives, is colliding with the pressures created by global violence and climate change, and the nativism of the Trump administration. Migrants are forced to choose their survival, and the last 20 miles of these journeys could become the most dangerous, ending in death. Is the mix of aggressive and unstable border policy and harsh terrain creating the conditions for a perfect storm?
0: You've been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at The New School. Our engineer is Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112, and theme music composed by Eli Elenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes, and you can reach us by emailing us at TossedTempest at gmail.com. That's tossed tempest, all one word, at gmail.com.